Welcome to Tadween Talks, a series on status featuring conversations with the authors and editors of Tadween Publications. Beyond the text themselves, Tadween Talks will also be a space to discuss broader trends in publishing on the Middle East, as well as to investigate the role of publishing and further our goal of critical knowledge production here at the Arab Studies Institute. My name is Jonathan Adler, and I'm the managing editor here at Tadween Publishing. My guest today is Ziad Aburish, an assistant professor of history at Ohio University and a co-editor of Jadalia. Among other things, he is the co-editor of and a contributor to The Dawn of the Arab Uprisings, which was published by Pluto Press back in 2012. This book also served as a sort of precursor to the launch of Tadween, as, if I'm not mistaken, it was the first time that Jadalia was featured in print. So Ziad, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So to start, could you give our listeners uh, just sort of a general introduction to the book and how the collection of essays within it came together in print? You know, at first glance, it might look just like another edited volume addressing the so-called Arab Spring, but I think it's you know much more than that. Yes, absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, this was published uh, with Pluto Press in 2012. So it's actually one of the earliest book publications that tried to deal with the Arab uprisings um, shortly after their eruption and, of course, December 2010 in Tunisia and then moving forward in time and in geography. You know, the idea really was to try and put in one place and in print a collection of articles that had been published on Jadalia about the Arab uprisings, either comparatively, theoretically, or very case-specific. And what we were trying to think about is how to select this collection of articles in a way that would both highlight what Jadalia was able to contribute in terms of knowledge production on the Arab uprisings, but also what can serve as a valuable pedagogical tool in the classroom. And as you pointed out, I mean, when this volume came together, the Arab uprisings were still unfolding. And so rather than to try and make a claim about the final trajectory of the uprisings or have a final word, we decided that it would be best for us to think of the dawn of the Arab uprisings as an attempt to archive a very particular moment of knowledge production on the Arab uprisings, circumscribed, of course, in the articles that were published on Jadalia. And by saying producing an archive, what we wanted to do was create a record of the different types of reactions that scholars and activists had to the eruption of the uprisings. At the same time that we wanted to capture what we felt was a particular moment of optimism, of imaginative possibilities, that as we were putting this edited volume together, we understood was necessarily narrowing or being foreclosed by what many people think of as the turn to the resurgence of authoritarian regimes or the violent uh, crackdown uh, against uprisings in places outside of Tunisia and Egypt thus resulting in what I think we think of today as the Arab uprisings having resulted in a new type of authoritarianism across the Middle East. 
Great. Yeah. And and on that idea of an archive, I mean, you know, that that seems to reflect something that the late Roger Owen discussed in the foreword to the book when he noted the role of Jadalias as this ever-expanding archive whose significance can only really be fully understood in retrospect. So now, you know, over over seven years later, after the publication of this book and for Jadalia as well, what, what do you think the importance of Jadalia's coverage of the events of 2011 has been and of this volume in particular as a curated archive of those events? Well, you know, I think to effectively answer that question, we have to try and imagine what the online publication landscape looked like in mm. 2010, 2011, and uh, early 2012. When Jadalia was launched several months before the outbreak of the Arab uprisings, we thought of it as a platform that would provide the kind of in-depth, peer-reviewed analysis uh, that would be research-based that we saw in peer-reviewed journals, and in particular, the Arab Studies Journal, which is you know an affiliate publication of Zedalia, but something that had a much faster turnaround and was far more accessible in terms of accessing the content, but also in terms of you know, accessing the pros in the content. And so the idea was to create a platform that was rigorous in the sense of peer review and research-based, but rapid enough to come out. And the idea there was to avoid being a blog or one of these platforms where anything goes and to 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 come up with the framework for Zedalia. So I think we had a timely platform that was in place when the Arab uprisings emerged. And I think that's why we were able to be a magnet for a range of scholars and activists to publish material about the uprisings as they were unfolding. We featured content by grassroots activists that had not had the kind of platform that Jadalia had in terms of getting exposure outside of their, their local circumstances or national circumstances. And at the same time, we were able to draw on the experience of scholars who were quite published or reputable, but had not necessarily written in a format such as that provided by Jadalia. Um, I think that is one of the most important issues. You know, moving to 2012 and to today, you know, there are several other platforms now that are online and that try to provide something similar, differences across these platforms notwithstanding. But I think it's important to remember that in 2010, 2011, you really were primarily looking at a series of blogs uh, rather than kind of the easy that the Jadalia model tried to provide. And it was not necessarily unique in the world of online publications, but I think when it came to Middle East studies and to networks of solidarity across the Middle East, it did provide something that was unique as a platform. Hmm. And of course, it would not have been successful without drawing on pre-existing networks of scholars and activists in the region and outside of the region. Hmm. And could you talk a little bit more about, you know, how how or sort of the, the decision behind publishing some of the articles that were, you know, first published on Jadalia just online uh, during the uprisings, sort of what you think the value of publishing them in print is, and perhaps sort of the process 
that you and your other co-editors went through when deciding sort of how to create a mini archive or a curated archive of the the protests that would be published in print? Yes, absolutely. Well, the idea was first to concentrate the information and analysis and authors that we ended up curating in one central repository. Um, of course, you could always go on Jadalia and search by country, search by topic, search by author, and, and find this material there uh, now. But the idea was to put in one place a curated list of articles and authors that were thematically and chronologically organized. The decision to go and do this in print really had to do with the idea that we felt pedagogically we still live in a world in which while online publication and electronic publications are growing in terms of their share of source material for classrooms and for researchers, we cannot deny the significance of print publications and that they continue to carry uh, the lion's share of what gets assigned in classrooms. And for something that was ultimately going to be book length anyway, it made sense to try and think of ways to release it in print so that it could be carried around, so that it could be opened up, you know, in a seminar and a discussion session, so on and so forth. And mm -hmm. so that was really the idea that once we decided to curate and to bring together such a broad and significant and hefty uh, list of articles it made sense that if we wanted to, to be productive, we would want to think about it in terms of a print publication. And there's also the fact that when you work with a print publication, you're able to access different audiences and readerships than you would necessarily only in electronic publication. And so working with a press before we, of course, had Tadwin Publishing, like Pluto Press, made sense in terms of also being able to make it accessible to networks and to arenas that we didn't necessarily have contact with. I want to go back just briefly to a point that you touched on, on the resurgence of authoritarianism in the region. And, you know, that, that fact sort of contrasted with some of the expectations that people had when these protests first broke out in 2011 and that are conveyed, uh, I think, in some of the essays in, in the volume. You know, one idea that comes through clearly in this book is the fact that the Arab uprisings themselves could not have been predicted that, you know, as, as you and your co-editors noted in the introduction, quote, if in early December 2010, one had predicted the fall in whole or in part of four heads of Arab states and the prevalence of anti-regime protests across the Arab world, it would have been dismissed as wishful thinking. And it seems also, you know, as we talked about, that the future of political orders across the region in the wake of these uprisings have continued to be difficult, if not impossible, to predict. And I think that's, you know, that is borne out by the fact that such scholars as Roger Owen, you know, who argued in the book that the, quote, old era of presidents for life is now gone for good, you know, him and Rashid Khalidi, uh, another scholar who suggested in the book that the, quote, day when Arab rulers could ignore Arab public opinion and cozy up to Israel while it brutalized the Palestinians is, pa is past. The fact that they could not have foreseen the failures 
of the uprisings to fundamentally change the political status quo, I think, is a testament to this fundamental unpredictability. So with that being said, um, and also, you know, in the context of the ongoing uprisings in Lebanon, Iraq, Algeria, and, and Sudan, what can we be sure of, if anything, about the future of the region looking forward? Wow, that's that's a, a, a very difficult question and one with a lot of responsibility. And it's in these instances where I'm tempted to retreat to my disciplinary training as a historian and tell you that, you know, I, I like to stick to discussing the past and the present and leave predicting the future to people who overwhelmingly have failed in predicting the future time and time again. But, you know, on a more serious note, I think the, the issue about the future of the region is not so much in terms of predicting what is going to happen, but maintaining a type of theoretical and methodological openness to the idea that the people of the region are, you know, conscious historical agents that while operating in particular political, economic, social, and strategic contexts are nevertheless agents of their own uh, existence. Absolutely. And I think the problem with the people who failed to imagine or predict, you know, that people could rise up in the way they did in Tunisia or any number of other countries across the Middle East and North Africa had to do with a type of theoretical and methodological narrowness that did not allow for contingency, for spontaneity, but also for the basic fact that given the right circumstances, people will rise up, right? And, and the debate is uh, then either do people have the capacity to rise up or the debate is are the conditions for them to rise up in place? And I think what many people had overlooked is that one people of the region had the capacity, and two, that sometimes the conditions that make those capacities come to fruition are a combination of structural and contingent factors. And I think as we move further and further away from 2010, 2011, and look back, we are starting to see much better research on this combination of structural and contingent factors. On the other hand, I think it's important to clarify what I personally mean by the resurgence of authoritarianism. Sure. Of course, authoritarianism in the region never went away in 2010, 11, or 12. What I mean by the resurgence of authoritarianism is mainly a description of the scholarship that has, you know, viewed many of the uprisings as failures to overthrow authoritarian regimes. And that while mass protests or opposition groups could have had the upper hand at a particular moment, we now see a status quo in the Middle East and North Africa, or so is claimed, where authoritarian regimes have the upper hand once again. And not only do they have the upper hand once again, but that they have retooled themselves and their strategies in order to either prevent the emergence of uprisings once again or to manage them in more effective 
means. And of course, as you alluded, as we're conducting this interview, we have massive protests in Lebanon, in Iraq. We have very different outcomes to massive protests in Algeria and Sudan. That's to say nothing of looking back at the legacies of what happened in Tunisia, in Yemen, in Syria, and in Bahrain, and the reverberations across the region. Hmm. And, uh, you know, one final point I'd make about this is that rather than viewing the uprisings as a failure, I think it's also important that we think of the fact that the very nature of regime calculations and strategies is fundamentally different today than it was before the uprisings, simply because while they might have taken mass uprisings for granted in the sense that they could not emerge prior to 2010, today we have regimes across the Middle East and North Africa that simply cannot ignore the potential for a mass uprising. Hmm. And that has fundamentally changed the calculus of regimes, the calculus of regional and external players, but also the calculus of people on the ground in the Middle East and North Africa. Absolutely. And and going back to something that you mentioned um, in terms of the sort of the scholarship, both the scholarship before the outbreak of the uprisings that argued that it would have been impossible to challenge authoritarianism in the region, as well as, you know, over the last few years, the quite substantial literature that has emerged that attempts to address 2011 with a bit of hindsight and explain its successes and perhaps limitations. I wanted to ask how you think this book, The Dawn of the Arab Uprising, fits into this literature and perhaps doesn't you know fully fit in offering analyses that capture, as you know in the introduction, the quote, first irretrievable moments of the uprisings when the impossible became inevitable? Yeah, well, you know, that's a great question. And that takes us back to how was this edited volume conceptualized? And I think it's really important to, to recognize that this is a sampling of everything that was published on Jadalia. And so then we ended up with the question of, well, what do we include and what do we exclude? We tried to include pieces that showed um, a variety of approaches and emphasis in understanding, explaining, or predicting the future of the uprisings in particular countries as they were unfolding. But we were also quite cognizant of the fact that putting this volume together in, you know, the second half of 2011 and the early part of 2012, we did not want to actually simply use historical hindsight and select only the articles that time proved were correct. And I think that's something that's very important. We wanted to show the breadth of analysis and the diversity of expectations about who and what would emerge in specific countries or across the region. And I think that's also important to, to keep in mind. It's also an interdisciplinary volume in the sense that many of the scholars whose work is featured cut across political science, history, anthropology, and many other disciplines including the inclusion of 
voices of activists on the ground in the region, some of which wrote, you know, under a pseudonym during the uprisings and until today have not revealed who they were. Some of the editors in Jadalia knew who they were because we always try to verify who the author is, even if we're willing to grant them anonymity. So I, I think this combination of interdisciplinarity, combination of scholars and activists, but also this idea that we wanted to select a series of pieces that might be contradictory in some ways, some of which their analysis might have proven to be lasting in the sense that they apply until today. And some of these analyses were very particular to the moment in which they were published. We wanted to be open about that fact and highlight it. And I think one final point, Jonathan, about the putting together of the volume and how it differs. And if, you know, we did not have a chance necessarily to talk about the table of contents, but for the listeners perspective, just to share, you know, we have a set of theoretical comparative pieces in the opening section. And then we move by country, right? We do Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Bahrain, Yemen, Syria. And then we do a final section called regional reverberations, where we want to look at countries that did not experience the same type of mass mobilizations, but were nevertheless affected at the time. And here we're thinking of Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Algeria, and Iraq. So one of the things to keep in mind is that the sections on Tunisia, on Egypt, on Libya, on Bahrain, on Yemen, and Syria are uneven. They're uneven in the sense of the number of articles, but they're also uneven in how comprehensive a look they offer us into these countries. And we as a volume that was trying to archive a particular moment of knowledge production and a particular moment of political expectations wanted to also capture the unevenness of knowledge production and the unevenness of access to understanding what was happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. We simply had a much broader network as scholars and solidarity activists across the region and from outside of the region to understand what was happening in places like Tunisia and Egypt, for example. Those, you know, bases of knowledge production and solidarity networks were far fewer when it came to Libya or certain other places. And we wanted to highlight this fact. I think, you know, and readers can judge for themselves, that we offer significant analyses and understandings of what transpired in each of those countries. But we can also acknowledge that we offer those analyses on very different terms. And those different terms are a reflection of the politics or the political economy, if you will, of knowledge production on different countries and places in the Middle East and North Africa. And we wanted to highlight that fact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one positive note I want to hit on before we finish, you know, is, is the expanded scope um, of uh, Jadalia's uh, access you know, compared perhaps to, you know, its access and its scope during the uprisings. And I wanted to get your input on the current wave of uprisings and revolutions that, that we just sort of touched on a little bit. You know, in some ways, it seems like Jadalia has returned to its original purpose in providing firsthand on the ground coverage of protests in places, you know, like Lebanon and Iraq. Has this coverage differed in any significant ways 
from Jadalia's coverage of the 2011 uprisings? Do you see another perhaps edited volume emerging from this Arab Spring? That's a great question, Jonathan. I'd respond by by noting a couple of things. The first is that because Jadalia was launched prior to the uprisings, we really did not necessarily see ourselves as providing on the ground and immediate coverage of developments as they emerged because developments were not occurring as rapidly as they did when the uprisings emerged or when, you know, in the current wave of protests, for example, uprisings in Lebanon and Iraq emerged. What we wanted to do was to create a platform where we could, again, bridge this idea of accessible, quickly processed analysis and writings on the region, along with peer review and research-based analysis. So I think we've been consistent on, on that front since before the uprisings and through the uprisings. But uh, what you point to is important in the sense that since the uprisings and because of the uneven political economy of knowledge production that we were already aware of but was brought further into relief through people's coverage of the Arab uprisings, we at Jadalia have made a concerted effort to expand our team quite significantly. So we have moved from what I believe were the 10 to 12 co-editors of Jadalia in 2000, early 2011, for example, to a much broader network in which we have approximately 15 Jadalia co-editors. And then we now have page editorial teams, which might combine individuals from the Jadalia co-editors group, but also with other individuals who are primarily interested in editorial work related specifically to a thematic page such as migrants and refugees, or to a country page such as Egypt. In relation to that, perhaps the most important expansions we've seen on Jadalia uh, since the Arab uprisings emerged was to build intentionally networks of scholars and activists as part of a broader set of projects related to the Arab Studies Institute that we can draw on for timely analysis of what's happening, but also for timely evaluation of analyses that are submitted to Jadalia. Mm. So, for example, perhaps the, the two most important regional pages or developments since the Arab uprisings in terms of Jadalia was the launching of the Maghrib page, which has a team that is far more specialized on questions having to do with Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia than was the case previously. And very recently, of course, the launching of the Iran page, which again, you know, preceded the current wave of protests that happened in November 2019 in Iran, but which once we launched, put us and primarily the co-editors of the Iran page on Jadalia in a unique position to both offer analysis, but also collate review, and enhance other people's analysis in, in the sense of serving as a platform. So I think that that has been a very important set of developments. And we look forward to continuing to grow uh, and, and to develop and to work with what is really a, an amazing network of scholars and activists based in the region and outside of the region that we have been fortunate to work with and to build the relationships that we've built with. 
thanks so much, Siad. This has been uh, extremely enlightening uh, and fun interview. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. And I'm only sorry that due to logistical constraints, uh, my co-editors, Bassam Haddad and Rosie Bashir, were not able to join us. I think they would have added a lot to the conversation. And perhaps there'll be a future opportunity to hear directly from them. Because this really was, you know, first and foremost, a collaborative effort on the part of the Jadaliya team at the time any and all of these articles were produced to solicit, to review, to edit, to publish, to promote the content. But then the work of, you know, curating and thinking thematically, theoretically, and methodologically about what to include and what not to include was a real collaborative effort on the part of Bassam Haddad, Rosie Bshir, and myself. And we were very fortunate, of course, to be able to bring in Roger Owen to write the forward on the book and to reflect on the significance of the book as an edited volume produced at a particular time with a particular aim. His loss and his passing, you know, uh, last year was a great loss to the field of Middle East studies. And we were also fortunate, of course, to have Madawi Rashid to write the afterword of the book. So we consider ourselves very lucky and we appreciate the opportunity to highlight what I believe continues to be a relevant volume on the Arab uprisings, if only to understand and not forget the the intense debate and euphoria. Some might claim it was too optimistic, but others might claim it was just what the moment required and it could not have been elsewhere. And I think it's important for us to hold on to that. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview? A program episode or becoming a partner, email our associate producer Paola Messina at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.